data speaks the truth. That's a quote from my guest today, who is a brilliant, thoughtful, insightful leader in the health equity space. And I am honored to have her join me today to talk about how we can use both human-centered and data-centered approach to help us tackle the gaps in health outcomes that we see across all kinds of divides. My guest, Issy, brings such a nuanced and attentive approach to this. I learned so much from our conversation, and whether or not you are in the healthcare space or you do anything that has to do with health, I think you will learn as well how we can bring both data and an attention to people to bear on making sure that we are treating everyone fairly and justly. And I would invite you as well after we listen to this to see how you might bring some of these data practices into your own organizations, into your own teams. Hello and welcome to Heart, Soul, and Data, the podcast where we explore the human side of analytics to amplify the impact of nonprofits and social enterprises. With me, your host, Alexandra Mannering. Thank you so much for joining me today. Would you mind introducing yourself for everyone who gets to listen? Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Very exciting topic, and I'm glad to be here. My name is Issa Yerdau. I am the Director for Data Analytics at Colorado Hospital Association. Um, I've been with CHA for about two years now, and we do a lot of work um, in support of our communities and our hospitals just to make sure that um, every Coloradan can have their healthiest lives. And so that's one of the reasons why social determinants of health and health equity and everything that goes along with that is important to us, and I'm excited to talk about it. At CHA, I'm over the data analytics department, and we are have the privilege of getting data from our hospitals, and that allows us to do a lot of population health level analytics around how our patients are faring, whether they're getting um, treatment in Durango or the Denver metro area. We're able to sort of understand um, treatment outcomes, uh, how are things faring, if there is any inequities, what would be a potential opportunities for that, those kind of things. And so um, we work with our hospitals on quality related projects, that's usually where we end up having the opportunity to think about social determinants of health and how that might impact clinical care that's provided or the outcomes of that clinical care that's provided. So that's me in a nutshell. And these are organization, a person and a topic very near and dear to my heart. So I'm so glad you get to be here today to talk about this. Let's start with the basics, because I think this is a term that gets thrown around a lot, but not always are people really like, tuned into what this means. So when we talk about social determinants of health, what do we actually mean by that phrase? That's a good question. And I do agree that lately it's kind of been thrown around with, and it's getting a little bit of a bad rap, but it, the definition of social determinants of health is actually pretty generic. So I'm going to read it off just so that we're all on the same page. And so Social determinants of health are the conditions in the environment where people are born, live, learn, work, play, worship, and age um, that affect a wide range of your things like your health, how you function, your quality of life outcomes, and what type of risks that you're exposed to. So your social determinants of health actually could be a positive thing. So you, where you live, for example, if you live in Castle Rock and the air is clear and you've got plenty of space and you feel safe, that's a good social determinants of health, as opposed to some um, populations that tend to live in high-risk areas where there's a lot of violence, 
they may not have air conditioning in the summer or heat in the winter, that would be bad social determinants of health, right? And both of those affect the quality of your life and your health outcomes. But just the definition in itself is just talking about sort of everything around you that contributes to your health in general. I love that you point out that just the, the, the approach to social determinants by itself is not positive or negative, right? A social determinant is not always negative. And I think that that's something that's easy to miss, that this just means how do the things around you, the ways that we live, the places that we live, the structures that we live in, how do those influence your health and your health outcomes? Because sometimes it can help you. And I think that that's important because sometimes addressing those social needs, right, means shifting it to a positive influence from a negative influence. Exactly. And so why do, when you're in the healthcare sector, like it might be kind of an interesting thing, all right, you, you represent hospitals, why do you need to care about social determinants? Why do healthcare providers need to, to pay attention to social determinants? Yeah, and I think this is, that's a great question. And I think something that is well studied, there's plenty of evidence and it's documented um, that those factors, where you live, where you play, where you work, um, contribute to your clinical outcomes. So I think, you know, only looking at if someone has diabetes or a chronic health, heart condition um, or, you know, has anemia, those kind of things, yes, we can understand the nuances of someone's clinical outcomes, but we need to also understand the why. What's the story of how that person got to where they got with their clinical condition? If, for example, a person is not taking their medications and they're not compliant, you know, why, you know, that might be because they don't actually have transportation or they cannot afford the medication. And that has other implications where as healthcare entity, we can intervene differently than just simply saying, okay, well, this person is not compliant. They don't want to take care of themselves, right? So sometimes um, just looking at what's in their chart, their medical chart um, gives opportunity to draw in the incorrect conclusions about a patient without taking into account every other factor that was happening to them where they live in and exist in before they arrive to your office as a you know outpatient doctor or into the emergency department. There's a lot that happened along the way to get to the patient there. So I think um, as hospitals and providers, it's important for us to consider the whole person, not just what we have documented about them in their medical record, but really what's their story? How did they get there? And what are some potential interventions where we could intervene at a community level or a population health level that could have a major impact on that person's quality of life. It's obviously hard to pin down, but there have been studies that have placed that social determinants, you know, influence or control like anywhere from like 40 to 70 percent of someone's like health outcomes. And so when you're talking about being the hospital and like maybe you have control over 30 percent of their outcome, maybe a little more. And so to ignore the other 70 or 60 percent of what's driving their health would put you in a position where you're going to be a lot less effective. So I like that you said, you know, we really have to focus on the whole picture rather than just the part that presents at the provider, you know, whether it's the ED or the outpatient or anything like that. One of the reasons I think that we got so interested in this conversation of social determinants is that is also one of the places where health equity really starts to show up. Because you can have somebody, you know, a, a different people who have the same conditions, right? They both, might both have diabetes or they might both have asthma, but the environments both built and social that they live in are going to drive very different outcomes. 
and potentially very different responses to care and things like that. So can we talk also a little bit about the role that health equity plays in social determinants and what we even mean again by health equity, another term that gets bandied around a lot. Right. And it, I mean, these are all like sort of happy words or like, you know, progressive words that we do like to say, and we want to be a part of that work. But a lot of us probably don't know exactly what would that mean? Or how do we actually empower each other to participate in that work? So, you know, health equity is just basically having the same like opportunity to live a healthy life, right? Like no one person is disadvantaged um, from achieving their highest uh, level of health or lifestyle. And so I think it's easier sometimes to understand health equity by thinking about health disparities. And so it's like, what does that mean? And health disparities basically like those, as you were talking about those structural and social sort of systemic um, racism or any type of ism that's marginalizing people and then therefore like leading them to experience healthcare differently because of where who they are and where they come from. And so we have seen plenty of evidence again that shows like, for example, um, when we think about infant mortality, which is like unfortunately, you know, death of babies, which makes all of us sad, right? We want every uh, family and parents and child to have the same opportunity to live healthy lives. But unfortunately, the reality is that's not true. And so um, one thing that we know, for example, is that the health disparity is infant mortality increases as the mother's level of education decreases. So the less education that the mother has, the higher the chance of something bad happening to the infant. And, and that is a health disparity because one would hope, regardless of your social, educational, socioeconomic status, what your background is, that we all have the same opportunities to experience, you know, that joy of giving birth and having our health, babies be healthy. But, you know, the reality is that's not necessarily the case for everyone. And right, and the outcomes look different. And so when we talk about health equity, we would want to create a structure and our healthcare to exist in a way that regardless of who you are, when you are interacting with the healthcare system to deliver your baby, we can expect the same great outcomes most of the time for everyone. Um, of course, there's going to be circumstances we cannot control. However, for the circumstances we can control, we want to ensure that most people are going to be able to deliver and then, you know, raise their kids in a healthy manner. I think that that's a really interesting take, again, that goes back to both the positives and the negative side of social determinants, which there may be something that's ex you know, driving a disparity that either could be caused by a social determinant or could potentially be addressed and alleviated by a social determinant. So if we see, like you said, this disparity in outcomes for infants based on the mother's education, well, we might not as a healthcare provider be able to change the level of a mother's education, but can we come up with other things that we can do to then level that playing field, to, to compensate for whatever disadvantage, you know, a particular mother is going to walk into the delivery room with and provide resources, support, a new environment, some change in that social determinant that is going to actually you know, result in improved outcomes or improved chances of better outcomes. And I know, for you and me, we're both moms and talking about that risk walking in that like you and I faced different risks when we decided to become moms. And that is something that I think we could all agree we would like to live in a world where that's not the case. And addressing social determinants gives us one chance to try to make that not the case. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I with my second, I was absolutely second child, which um, I was petrified that, you know, I was going to succumb to some sort of medical complication because the um, reports about black moms and black maternal health had just started coming out. And it caused a lot of anxiety because I couldn't really understand it. Um, and what would what would the implication be for me, even though, you know, I have the privilege of having a master's in public health, I had a really great job, I had a great insurance, I had access to care. Um, but yet, and still, you know, just the idea that perhaps things could be different for me was caused this anxiety that I just didn't really know how to manage. And so I think that is um, something that, you know, as healthcare providers that we can be mindful of is there's this concept of cultural competency and really being able to hear the patient, why are they anxious and trying to have that conversation. Um, if someone is telling you they feel like they may be experiencing mistreatment or being treated differently because of who they are, their background, having sympathy for that and listening to the patient actually makes a difference, right? So I think, you know, if I was a hospital and being in their shoes, I would feel very overwhelmed. Like, to your point, I don't know how to fix someone's educational background. Like, I cannot make everyone finish high school, let alone go to college and et cetera. So what can I really do, right? If you might start to feel helpless as uh, any organization in terms of your power to impact, but really there are small things that human centric that you can do like listening and trying to understand someone's perspective that could influence the type of care that you provide that it could end up resulting in a positive outcome. So I think that's something that we could always sort of lean into is say, what are the things that are in our sphere that we can control that we could do? Um, and I think the other thing is also trying to understand kind of the root cause. Okay, so we know that a mother's education is a, de a determinant in terms of outcomes for infants. We can't necessarily mandate or regulate like what type of education and for how long that parents get. But what is some other stuff that's actually impacting that? And, you know, one thing you get into when you're talking about um, infants and, and expectant mothers and, and persons is, access to care. And so it's like, oh, can we provide greater access? Can we remove some of the barriers in terms of financial barriers or, um, you know, transportation? That's something that comes up quite a bit, right? Like people do not have, not everyone has a car um, to go to and from appointments. So how do we help people get to their appointments and make sure that we're the, you know, clinical care is getting closer to where people live and they don't have to travel far to get care. And I think there's some really innovative things that are happening now where the clinical team is actually coming to your home to provide care. And that could change things for people. And especially if you have mobility issues and it's really hard for you and the world is not actually built to support people who have mobility, you know, challenges. And so it's like just thinking about all of those things and being creative is ways that I think we can empower our healthcare providers to start thinking about what are things that we could do differently, um, different than how we've done them in the past to sort of remove those barriers so people, again, could have equal access to healthy outcomes. And, it, and you set up this transition beautifully to the, to the next question that I really wanna dig into because as you were saying, understanding the root cause can lead us to finding effective solutions. And it's not just that necessarily if someone could sit through 
four years of high school, but suddenly, miraculously, the risk of their baby dying is going to drop. There's other things that are tied to that education, whether it's that it's actually stand-in for something else, like so, like how much money you have or where you live, right? We know that your education is not just randomly distributed across the, <laughs> the population, right? That people who don't graduate high school are more likely to earn less money and that could have something to do with it. They might be less likely to own a car and transportation has something to do with it. There's so much complexity to those challenges. And one of the tools that we have at our disposal is data to say, how can we find information to try to get at these root causes and understand where those disparities exist? And so I would love to hear from you where are some of the biggest places that we can use data and health equity and how can we think about data and health equity from the, the fact that I think sometimes people are afraid to bring data to this because it feels like it should be a person only problem, right? That we should only think about the humans in it and not necessarily the numbers involved. Not surprisingly, as a data person, I'm just like, actually, no, we should just think about it hard and fast numbers. No, cut it out, emotions. No, I think it's it, both. It's you have to the to get innovative innovative you have to think about the whole person how are they and then you also have to think about data to see to assess what the actual problem is right and so um i think you know i would say that we're just at the beginning of the journey of using data to inform our decisions in terms of like equal distribution of care and resources when it comes to healthcare, I think, you know, some other industries may be a little bit further down the road. Maybe we could say our education partners might have a better understanding of some of those environmental influences and what is contributing to what, why are certain high schools have low, you know, matriculation or and graduation rates where other people are like 100% graduation rate. Like some places have done a little bit better than others. And part of it, it's nuanced. We will probably table for Later, it's talking about sort of that public to private partnership and data being available and not available. So one thing I think that's a challenge for healthcare, and it's a good challenge is, you know, we have a lot of privacy laws in place, rightfully so, to protect people's health information because we don't want people to be discriminated against because of their clinical conditions. And as a result of that, it's really hard to get access to the data to really understand it um, more holistically. And so I think now that we are kind of in an age where we're talking about aggregating what people call like big data, which is sort of like millions of records about people with thousands of factors about you, um, maybe we have a better understanding of correlation and causation. But because data tends to exist in silos in healthcare, again, sometimes on purpose, it's on behalf of our consumers and our patients, we want to protect their data it's hard to always know exactly the nuance and root cause analysis of what's happening. And then additionally, you know, again, we have a better understanding of someone's clinical outcomes because, you know, physicians and nurses and all of the clinical team is sort of educated on documenting why is a person sick and what's contributing to their sickness from a clinical perspective to, and then how much effort did we exert on this patient because we need to be paid for our efforts, right? Like in order to make sure that we continue to have health system, of course, they need to be reimbursed. And so I think just even the education around documentation has really been for the purposes of getting as much information as we can about the patient to show either 
was this a lot of resources necessary to take care of these patients or just a little bit because they're generally healthy? And so those kind of get paid differently, right? And so we would have part of this kind of conversation is even thinking about documentation differently and adding that step of what else is going on and being able to do a process saying, okay, well, tell us about your home environment. Do you have enough food at home, How transportation, um, what does that look like for you? You know, we would kind of have to change that query of the person to kind of start drawing um, conclusions at the hospital level, not necessarily like population research. We've got, we have plenty of that, but practically as a physician, if I'm expected to think about the whole person, I'm gonna need to have that data available to me at the point of care where I'm providing my clinical expertise. Um, and so that's something that we're, I think, starting that journey of trying to understand how that works, right? I mean, some, you know, clinical providers are still working with paper documentation. So not even everyone is working with in the electronic medical records, right? So first of all, we need equity along how information is transmitted. And I think that's where we can start thinking really about rural versus urban divide. And I think one thing that I always try to highlight for people who I'm talking to about health equity is it's not just race and ethnicity, right? And I think we put a lot of emphasis on that because that's true. There's a lot of discrimination that happens. However, um, there's a lot of Americans that live in rural America that do not have equal access as to those who live in urban settings. And, and those actually have major implications um, in terms of the, their health outcomes. And I think address there are some structural changes even there that we could address that is necessary. So talking about broadband coverage or thinking about making sure that physicians can be plugged into a system where they can collect information that can be shared um, so that everyone can have a whole person picture is important. So I would say, you know, first of all, collecting the right data is important. And that's where we are trying to start that conversation from a healthcare perspective is do we have all the information that we need to understand the root cause of why this person is has why happening to them, right? So if they have diabetes and it's type two, why? We gotta go all the way back and make sure we've got the right data to support those potential conclusions that we are drawing. And I think, you know, luckily there are certain um, resources like the American Community Survey, which is collected by the US Census Bureau. So while it's not at the patient level, it might not give you information about ISSE, it certainly can provide you information about the neighborhood that ISSE is living in that could help you think about, again, from a community engagement perspective, like what are the things as a healthcare provider that we could be doing to influence our community to remove, again, those barriers. So when I'm showing up to the emergency department, maybe my outcomes will be different because now you've identified like my neighborhood actually needs a grocery store, an affordable grocery store, not Whole Foods but maybe like a key supers, you know, and then helping to partner to bring healthy options to my neighborhood. And that might change the frequency of how often I end up in the emergency department, because I'm obviously eating really bad food, which might be, you know, impacting my diabetes and hypertension and all of those things. Well, we're on the show Heart, Soul, and Data. And I, I love that we're bringing together the fact that you have this human side and the data side. And it's not that you preferentially focus on one or the other, or that they're somehow in conflict, but in fact, they both need to be present all the time at all levels. And you talked about data at multiple levels, right? The need for a provider to have the right data on this patient, 
right? Does this patient experience homelessness? Does this patient experience violence in the home, right? What do I need to know about this patient? And changing the questions that we ask from that patient in order to give us information as providers to be able to address those needs or those environmental factors for good or for bad on how they might drive outcomes. But then also as part of that person level information that we bring together with how we listen to the patient, right? Just listening and hearing and treating that patient as an individual human. Right? That is one level of this. And then the next level though is how do we enable that information to come together while respecting patient privacy, while respecting many of the other challenges that go along with this so that we can start to understand then that social level of drivers, right? Because for you particularly, it might be this one issue, like you said, maybe you're not eating right, but at the higher level, it's actually a neighborhood issue. Well, there's not a grocery store. Or at an even higher level, it's there's this, you know, a policy that's preventing broadband from getting into rural areas. Or, right, and so you start to, to need to, to compile that information at higher and higher levels so that you can put together a picture of what those factors are that might be driving these outcomes, still then to bring it back down to, all right, can I understand how these high level things might be affecting this individual patient who's coming to see me for whatever it might be. And I, I love that you mentioned the American Community Survey. You know, there's definitely resources out there that are free and available, though sometimes a little bit difficult to wade through, right? The American Community Survey is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> there's a lot of data in there, but it is a great resource. And thinking about how we can start to, to bring all of this information together. We talked about then that we need to start by just collecting that information. So we need to have the right information available. Once we have that information, let's pretend we waved our magic data wand and we were able to collect all of the social information that we need about individuals. How could an organization put together those individual data points into something that was actually like a data-driven approach to addressing social needs? Yeah, and I think, you know, it's a bit hard to answer that question sometimes without knowing exactly who the organization is, not trying to circumvent the issue. But I think one is, um, we, which was, what we all should practice is like, who are we trying to impact as an organization, right? Like what's our sphere of influence and what outcome do we want to see? And I think depending on what's the population that you want to have an impact on, then you want to make sure that you can, you know, stratify the data in a way that would help you understand what are the potential opportunities. So in a healthcare setting, even if, you know, you happen to be a smaller facility that doesn't have like a lot of beds, maybe you're seeing, maybe let's just say hundred patients per month or something like you're not, um, you want to be able to look at your population of those who are interacting with your facility to say, okay, if I look at, um, let's say sepsis, which is a condition, you know, that you can get in a hospital, um, a bad condition, actually, it's like a, then if I divide that by age and I say, okay, who all is actually getting sepsis, right? I, it's not that I want to just, not only do I want to solve the problem, make sure that people do not have infections in the hospital, but who all exactly is um, more at risk for getting this infection. And then another way to do it might be um, by sex, you know, or gender and say, are males or females more likely to get a sepsis infection? 
And another way might be to look at race and ethnicity in your data and say, is one group more likely to get um, sepsis than another group, right? And so I think you've gathered your data, then you kind of start dividing it by groups, and then, then you take it back to the social factors and say, okay, if I have all these social factors information, okay, I looked at it by, you know, male or female, and then it, what about their social background? Is there one group, is there one factor that may predispose them to getting this infection, for example? So it, it takes a lot of sort of asking nuanced question of the data and not being afraid to see what is um, the outcome, because I think it can be a little scary. No one wants to see in their data that they've gathered that their organization or them as the person working at an organization is contributing to some sort of disparity. So it does take a little bit of bravery to ask and of the data, you know, what is actually happening to my patients or my community. Um, but I think when you start to compare, not only just looking at outcomes, did something that good or bad happen to population that I was studying, but which group within that population may be, you know, pre experiencing either really amazing outcomes or one group is experiencing really bad outcomes. And then we ask the question of, of why. And, and it is very complicated. I think that's why it's hard to, you know, potentially to get started down this journey because it's not just about an organization. It's also personal. You have to ask yourself, are there some biases that I may have that are contributing towards this? And, and I think that can be really difficult. So I do think that like, you know, the idea of being brave to ask is, is important because we all have our bias that we also need to address. So there are systemic issues that are contributing and structural issues towards groups of people having, you know, an even distribution of opportunity for health. And then there's, I think, personal ones. And, it, you know, we have to kind of balance the two, right? Like we can't put all of our effort on being, making sure people are like not racist and that's the only problem. And if we could just fix racism, then we're all good. It's like, actually, no, like if we can't fix the broadband policy, might not impact that community as much, right? And so it's like, we've got to look at the system and look at the data from a systemic perspective and say, are there processes and policies in place that are affecting this group? And then as a person, are, are there things that we may be doing unintentionally that could be contributing towards these uneven outcomes? And what, what may we as an organization do about one or both? I like that you laid out a, a flow that an organization, really regardless of size, could take to leverage data to really impactfully address these kinds of issues. Because you started with what? right? We're going to use both data and our self-definition of our organization to figure out you know, what is our sphere of influence and what are we trying to achieve? So if you're a small rural hospital, right? All right, we have influence within this rural community and the outcomes that we want for our rural patients are X, Y, and Z, but you might be a food bank and say, okay, here's who we serve. And, and so this is the, the what that we can influence. And you can use data then to, to, to define that as well. And then once you get into defining what it is, whether it's sepsis or whether it's lack of access to food, you know, the outcome that you're trying to influence, you can say, you know, who is being either better served by this or has poorer outcomes from this. So we can use data again on you know how we've defined our group to say who who is benefiting or suffering under this 
And then you can start to dig into those a bit of those root causes, the how, right? How are these groups coming out differently? Um, and you might be able to dig into, like I said, whether it's the, the first you start with the categorization. Well, we see that women are more likely to experience this than men. And then the how can start to get into that mechanism. Um, and then from the mechanism, you're going to get to the why, right? Is it a systemic reason of, of the why that we have this, this factor that's causing this? Or is it, you know, implicitly things that we're doing? And we're always going to be biased in that that's, we have to process the world some way. We're, we're not om, omniscient. So we're going to filter information. We're going to process it. We're going to interpret it. But being transparent and conscious of how we're doing that interpretation can really help us. And when we identify, and you said, like having the bravery to identify whether we have a system in our facility that's driving this, or we have a perception or a belief that's driving that, and can we address that? And then it goes back up. And then we get to the fact that we can address the why, we can address the how, we can make it equal for the who to achieve our why. So for an organization that's not a healthcare provider, and I think a lot of our examples will generalize very easily, and I think it'll resonate with a lot of different organizations, but specifically, you know, for an organization that isn't a healthcare provider, what could they do to still contribute to health equity, even if they don't touch any part of the health equity space? Yeah, that's a great question, right? Um, because again, I think we all might feel overwhelmed by this whole idea of social determinants of health or even equity blank, you know, educational equity, climate, you know, equity, all of these things that we're all fighting for on an individual basis and wanting to know how. And I think there's, you know, there is, um, even in healthcare at CHA, we've kind of defined um, thinking about our DEI work, diversity, inclusivity, and equity work and kind of too, like there is that clinical work of trying to improve patient outcomes, but then there's also like, what does our organization actually look like work, right? And um, how do we represent um, at each level of the organization to make sure that we reflect our community? And I think when it comes to who our company or organization, whether you're a food bank or a school or any other group that's trying to do good in the world, you still have hiring practices that you have to think about. And that it's very, it's important to be mindful of, again, who are you serving? Like, what does your community look like? Where is your actual office in that community that you're trying to impact? And, and what is your values around that? And if your values around, you know, diversity of thought and persons, then you have to make sure that you do work to um, include different people in your organization so they can bring different thought and that you guys could be better together. And so I think we all have opportunity to think about who are we bringing on into our organization? And I think it's easy to kind of default and have a passive um, recruiting strategy if we start at the beginning and just say whoever applies, that's the population, that's the group of folks we're going to be hiring from. And um, we don't often feel empowered to be proactive about who, where we go to find the people that we think are the best talent for the work that we're doing. And I think when we are proactive, then we have opportunity to get plugged in into different communities and that allows us to, again, bring different persons with different views and backgrounds and thoughts and ages and all of that into our organization that can really help us understand opportunities. So I think if we keep hiring ourselves and we just replicate ourselves, then it's like, of course, we're going to think we have no problem. But it's like, have you thought about bringing someone that's completely different than you? And then see if they think that you may have a problem and opportunity for improvement. So I would say, look at your hiring practice, look at your community, see how can you influence there? 
Also think about who is in your executive staff and see, is it a male dominated sort of exec team? Is there equal distribution between the sexes and the genders? And um, is that an opportunity for improvement? And then you could also think about mentorship programs internal, like how can we um, continue to build the skill sets to uh, make sure that someone is prepared to be an executive at some point. And I think that's sort of the misnomer, right? That happens is like, well, we're looking for a CEO and there's not a lot of CEOs of color out there who could qualify. It's like, but why is that? That might be because people have been not been prepared to take on a position at a high level, like, and therefore that's why there's no qualified person that would meet that category because we didn't prepare. So it's building that pipeline internally and externally matters. And so having internships, having internal sponsorship and mentorship programs, those are things you could do. Um, I think there, I've heard like employee kind of groups, I forgot the actual name, but for example, um, we are mothers with young children, right? Having a group at work where, you know, parents of young children could come together to really talk about their woes. Like I did not sleep at all last night, you know? And like, what are, how can you help me? What are some practices to help me have a more balanced life? Like just recognizing the person outside of work and creating safe spaces um, another fancy word, but just creating a space where people can be their whole person at work and, and taking time for that and letting that be okay. That's a great way for someone as an organization to empower us, someone of a diverse background or single parents. I mean, there's just, there's so much life that's happening outside of work time. And just the more that we can acknowledge that in a workplace, I think the more that we can do to bring equity and into our work. Um, but I think if we don't, acknowledge the whole person, then we won't be able to do the work to make it all, you know, more equitable. Amen. Just yes to everything that you said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think as well that it's interesting that even still there, there's a place for data in all of this. And again, it's really interesting oh, yeah. because it feels so heart-centered and it is, and it should be. And if you just go based on like how you feel, you might miss things. Like you said, you might be like, oh, I feel like we have such a diverse organization. <laughs> but if you aren't actually willing to look at the numbers and to consider all the different facets, I loved that you brought up, this isn't just about racial equity. This is about age, right? Or do you have just all young people or all you know, older people later in their career and you're not you know, nurturing the, the younger generation or is it all urbanites, right? You haven't figured out how to embed into, you know, outside of your, your core community. Um, so all, thinking about all those different areas and figuring out how do you make sure that you have the data and information streams to inform you when you might be missing something in there. And I think you brought up a great point that this isn't about equal outcome per se, it's about equal opportunity. And if you aren't addressing the opportunity gaps, you're never going to get anywhere. And so for you to just shrug your shoulders and say, well, there's no one out there for this, that's that's not the right response. It's to go back and say, okay, let's let's look at our data. Is the problem that we're not getting a diverse enough applicant pool? Or is it that, you know, because you can use data to figure out where along your process it's breaking down. It could be at the very beginning, right, that, and, you know, that schools are failing you and not producing people who are skilled in these areas and you need to figure out how to help support that area of it or you're not reaching them and they're not applying for your jobs or they feel turned away because you're not inclusive in how you present your app. Like there's so many places this could break down and data could help you figure out you know, where in that process you're breaking down. But then also, you know, back to what we were talking about earlier with the why, 
making sure that you're using your data to really understand what's driving this. And I think it's easy as soon as you see a schism, let's say like by sex, oh, it's men versus women, be like, it's clearly sexism. Probably, maybe. I mean, and there could certainly be a component, but it could be something else, right? It could be that your hours are not inclusive of like getting your kids to childcare. So it's not that you're actually like pointedly biased against women and you hate women. It's just that you've built something that doesn't suit more women than it doesn't suit men. And so on really getting to those root causes so that you can appropriately address them is really important. So thank you so much for sharing all of this. I always love all of our discussions and I'm excited to be able to share this discussion. If people wanted to learn you know, more about you and your work um, and CHA, what could they do to, to find out more to follow you? I don't have any professional social media, so that's a good thing. And it's so anti-millennial of me, but <laughs> please reach out to me at um, if they dot year dot CHA.com. So um, I'd be happy to share my information. Um, and I love to talk more about this. I think this is yes. something that's definitely near and dear to me. Um, and I think we all want to take part in doing good work to provide, like we said, equal opportunities for good outcomes for all. And it's just a matter of finding what's the best way that we can support that work because you can't boil the whole ocean, right? But what can your organization do to be, you know, that positive change that we all want to see in the world? So, yeah, I think, you know, having these conversations, just trying to understand the why and what are people have been talking about? Because I think sometimes you, people might even be scared to say, I don't even understand, right? Um, because you're in your world, that, this may never have been a thing for you. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but you just didn't even know to ask, right? Um, if you grew up in a community that was pretty homogeneous and you guys all had the same religious backgrounds and upbringings, and then you went to a workplace that kind of also mirrored that, then, you know, you have one view of the world and, you know, it's just good to just open up our eyes and opportunities to just hear a different view and have that conversation. So, you know, overall, beyond just using data to tell the truth, which is what data does, um, I would just encourage all of us to have conversation and see, you know, what all, how can we contribute to bringing more good into the world? So, Anyway, we are also available at CHA.com. So you can find me there as well. Thank you so much, SA. You're welcome. And thank you so much for listening. Hopefully you feel a little more prepared to take on both a heart-centered and a data-centered approach to doing more good in the world through whatever your avenues are, whatever organizations you work with, whatever your passion is. If you found today's episode or any of our other episodes helpful, please share them with someone else who might find them helpful or drop us a rating or a comment to help other people who might benefit from the things we talk about here as well. I hope you have a great rest of your day and take care of yourself. You have been listening to Heart, Soul, and Data. This podcast is brought to you by Moroccanos, an analytics education, consulting, and data services company devoted to helping nonprofits and social enterprises amplify their impacts and thrive through data. You can learn more at Maracanos.com. M-E-R-A-K-I-N-O-S.com.